Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're back with our annual report from the New York and London film festivals. It's a slightly more limited rundown than usual because uh, COVID. I did not actually go to London this year. I watched remotely from my local Scottish indie screening room. They did not release any of the major films on uh, home screeners for critics, which is the studio's fault and is terrible and bad for access, especially for anyone with a chronic health condition, but we do not need to go into that now. We do have a lot of like really cool big indie movies, some of which you will see during Oscar season. We have lots of recommendations. So we're going to talk about Spencer, we're going to talk about The Souvenir Part 2, Last Night in Soho, The Power of the Dog, Petite Maman, Titan, Memoria, Macbeth, and Parallel Mothers. We loved a lot of these films, and a couple of them were not so good, as often is the case. Yeah, we just put together a list with no planning, and we're just going to go in order, because why not? We're experts, and also we can't go into that much depth for any of these, because obviously you've not seen them, so we will not discuss plot spoilers. As I said last week, I should have seen many films, but I did not because I conveniently got very ill for the two-week duration, or three-week duration of the festival, which was not convenient. But I still managed to see a few of the big, big titles. But Gavia will be doing more of the you know, reporting on some stuff that I didn't see, which we're going to start with Spencer, which was not, in fact, at New York at all, which was very odd to me. But you guys had it in the UK, which makes sense, given the subject matter. Yeah, this is a movie about Princess Diana. It's directed by the Chilean filmmaker Pablo Lorraine. Episode 38 of Overinvested is on his movie Jackie, which was about Jackie Kennedy, starring Natalie Portman. And this film stars Kristen Stewart, a very unlikely and uh, pleasingly strange casting choice for Princess Diana. It's not like a full biopic. It takes place over just like three or four days over Christmas in 1991. And at this point, Diana's marriage to Prince Charles is a complete fiasco. The two princes, Harry and William, are kind of youngish children, sort of you know, six and 10 or something like that. And the film sort of focuses on their really unpleasant relationships between Diana and the royal family and her own image as a public figure and particularly on her eating disorder. So if you have any triggers to do with eating disorders, just don't watch this film because <laughs> that is basically what the movie's about. It's very intense. It's a wonderful film. I think I liked Jackie slightly more. These two films are very similar kind of thematically and stylistically because they're about these women at a time of crisis who are also public figures and are these sort of icons of classy feminine beauty, that sort of thing. And Kristen Stewart has a really interesting performance in this because she kind of combines some of the nervous tics that we sort of associate with her with just this extremely histrionic performance. She's not kind of trying to do an impression of anything that we're really going to recognise. It's almost like a parody of typical biopic performances where you see people who are like trying to copy famous mannerisms. And it's like, I don't think Princess Diana really has famous mannerisms because we're so used to seeing her in still images. We're not used to seeing her on video as much. And what Kristen Stewart does is she does all of these sort of poses and just the way she moves, her body language is sort of animating 
all of these poses that you'll recognize from photos, like her sort of doe-eyed expressions and that sort of thing, which I just found really interesting. And then everyone else in the film is just doing really naturalistic performances, so it makes her look even stranger. It's a really emotionally intense film. I highly recommend it. And it has music by Johnny Greenwood, who is fast becoming the best and most exciting composer in Hollywood. Very stressful score on this one. And the child actors who play William and Harry are great. Yeah, I heard that from other reviews. Someone said in a podcast, I don't remember who, I apologize to this person, that they don't particularly look like those people did as children, but they kind of look plausibly like the children of Kristen Stewart might look. <laughs> Good job to the casting director. I always am impressed by... Yeah, I really when... wasn't thinking that, but like they're very kind of real and posh and there's some really quite funny scenes. Like, you know, this film is not without jokes. It's pretty intense, but like there are funny moments for sure. So I didn't read too many like full reviews of this. I try not to before I see a movie, but obviously it's been much discussed on Twitter and sort of festival podcasts like this one that I've listened to. And it seems like the general consensus in terms of how it's being talked about is that it's kind of more a movie about fame and the way that public figures get received by people like us than about Diana necessarily as a particular person. And I'm curious what you have to say about that. We really don't see very much of her role as a public persona. You know, it's almost all set in this castle, Sandringham Castle with the royal family. But it's definitely not a film that's kind of trying to be super accurate. You know, Netflix's show The Crown is marketed as all the, having all this research and stuff. And this movie is made by a Chilean filmmaker who is fascinated by Princess Diana because her his mum really liked her. And it's not from like a place of nostalgia. And thematically, it definitely does feel more like it could be an original drama, like just about someone's toxic relationships and that sort of thing. And... The fact that she is so famous just means that the audience brings a ton of baggage to the story in like a good way. Something that was that I really liked about this is the actors who are playing the rest of the royal family are all basically unknowns. Prince Charles kind of has like a relatively major role. The other royals barely do anything. Like the queen has a couple of lines. The rest of the family are essentially glorified extras and the camera really doesn't linger on their faces, which is essentially the opposite of any other type of biopic where you know, filmmakers are obsessed with like identifying all of the characters, you know, and it's like, that's not really relevant because it's all about Diana's sort of internal struggle. And honestly, tonally, it often feels like a psychological horror movie. Well, also the casting of Kristen Stewart, which has been much discussed, not only because the performance is apparently great. And like Pablo Lorraine has talked about this, that when they were shooting, he was sort of like, how can we support you in terms of the paparazzi, whatever. And she was like, it's fine. <laughs> like, yeah. like she's so yeah. hardened, right? Powering through. <laughs> There's like a meta element. Yeah, for sure. There definitely is in the casting. Not that she's like the most famous woman in the world or the only actress who's had like surreal, horrible, extreme interactions with the paparazzi, but she would be on a pretty short list. And in terms of like being a very young person and having that level of just yeah. like horrifying fame thrust upon you, right? That she's kind of unique in that way, in a way that parallels Diana pretty closely, even if their lives were obviously totally different. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm really looking forward to seeing this. I love Jackie too, obviously, and Johnny Greenwood is my favorite. We'll be talking about him again a few films down our list. Having a good year. 
But the next movie is something we've both seen, which is Souvenir Part 2 by Joanna Hogg, the sequel to The Souvenir, which was on both of our best of the year lists in 2018, 2019. Not the kind of film that usually has a sequel. (laughs) Well, it, it was really fascinating to me to watch this movie, which I think was probably my favorite of the festival. I totally loved it. And when the souvenir came out, it was announced as like, like she was already working on part two. Like it was a planned thing that it was going to be multiple films. And watching this movie, like we both loved the first film, but it became even richer for me having seen this because it's so apparent that it's really one piece of art that has just happens to be in two parts, right? As opposed to someone makes a movie and then they happen to have an idea for a second film, which like that can work out for sure. But in this case, it's one thing that has been bisected. And like yeah. to really understand I, I what she's I'd, doing, uh, you know. Rewatched it beforehand, because the friend I went to see it with had rewatched it before and she was like, Oh, it's so enriching, you you can see much so much more. But because the souvenir part one was one of the most like stressful and emotionally intense films I've ever seen, I was like, I'm too tired to rewatch this film like mid-festival. <laughs> Well, so for people who haven't seen that movie, I don't want to spoil the whole thing, and we obviously highly recommend it, although it is, as you say, quite stressful. Um, It's about this young woman who is based very closely on Joanna Hogg herself, who is a film student in the 1980s. And she gets into this relationship with this older man who you find out over the course of the movie has a drug problem. And it's this just like really difficult relationship And this movie takes place after that relationship has concluded. And she's kind of trying to figure out what happened and sort of work through it in her mind. And the tone is totally different because you don't have this sense of dread in the same way that you do in the first one, right? Like Tom Burke plays the the boyfriend in that first movie and he is really just incredible but the scenes with the two of them are just like so stressful because you know this is like a totally fucked up situation. Yeah. And also there's an extremely strong class element because yeah. the protagonist is like very posh. The, the London Film Festival's tagline for this is sort of like, oh, it's this wonderful exploration of British middle class life. And I'm like, this is not middle class life. She is like practically an aristocrat. And that's kind of why um, Honor Swinton Byrne is such a good casting choice because like, Tilda Swinton's very posh. Her daughter is very posh. She naturally has that accent. It's like, a, it's her first acting performance and she's definitely playing like within her own zone, um, including the sort of naivety and youthfulness. And she's at film school, but it's kind of like, it's not like a cool New York style film school. It's a relatively rural film school in 1980s England where most of the other students are working class. And so she's a bit of an outsider. And like, it's not a story about like an awful snobbish posh girl being shit. It's just like, Joanna Hogg is being sort of mocking and very affectionate towards the blind spots of her younger self, you know, and really facing up to, you know, her cultural background and how she had to evolve in order to make good and meaningful art. And the fact that she's had this quite sheltered upbringing definitely plays into the relationship she had with this guy. Yeah, he keeps asking her for money in the first movie and you're like, oh, this is not good. (laughs) But because this second half of the story takes place, you know, later, she's still sort of trying to process this 
experience and is obviously upset about various things that have happened to her. But it's just way less upsetting. It's very funny. There's humor in the first one for sure, but because you have this dread that goes along with it, it's we both found it very stressful, as we keep saying. And this movie is just way more pleasurable to watch, I think. I mean, Morgan's ready to award Richard Ayoade an Oscar for his very funny supporting role in this. <laughs> oh my god. He's not in it very much, just, just a few scenes. And he was briefly in the first one as well. Um, he's another student at the film school. Literally, he would just appear on the screen. He didn't even have to say anything. And the entire audience would just be like shrieking with laughter. <laughs> it's kind of the combination of like his body language. And he's like this really over the top flamboyant character. And he has these like amazing outfits. The costumes in the souvenir part two, by the way, some of my best favorite costumes of the year. Amazing sort of 80s art student outfits. Yeah. But the class stuff that was in the first one is obviously still very much a part of the second film. And you see the the tensions between her and the other students even more because that's more what the movie's about because the boyfriend is no longer part of the story, right? So you have these incredibly awkward conversations that are like both extremely uncomfortable, but also often quite funny because she is now directing a movie that is about this relationship that she had, which of course is what the souvenir is itself, right? So you've got all these meta elements, but she also just like doesn't know what the fuck she's doing and keeps being like, well, actually the light should be coming from over here. And the people who are working on her movie are like, we just spent an hour setting up the lighting. Like, what are you doing? And she just like is very earnest, but has this kind of like flighty rich girl thing going on. And I think one of the biggest achievements of these movies is the real steeliness with which Joanna Hogg is looking at herself at this age and like the class stuff is so pointed and she's really not letting herself off the hook but it's not being so brutal to herself that it feels self-flagellating either like it just feels very honest and the movie also has near the end a dream ballet type sequence that is a clear reference to the red shoes which is all about the impossibility of being a female artist and that's also like what these movies are about right it's becoming a female artist um and I was just like beside myself. I was so happy. I was like, I love this so much. Just tremendous. Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. Did we mention that Tilda Swinton plays the protagonist's mother, like her own mother? Yeah. I mean, great casting there, obviously. <laughs> One of her best roles, I think. Yeah. I feel like a lot of her recent performances have been kind of big, which is she does great and just can be really fun. And this, she's just playing like... Posh old lady. Yeah. And she's... Very Honestly, good. the dad is underrated because the dad is just like some guy, but he looks so real. He's got this sort of, um, his styling and his sort of hair and his florid face and mannerisms are like of a type of extremely upper class English guy that doesn't make it to films. Uncool, extremely rich English dad. <laughs> There's a subplot where Tilda in this movie is doing a pottery class that I can't even... <laughs> so good oh god i love this film five stars <laughs> yep a less good film according to you <laughs> yeah from the more high profile but less good end of british independent cinema we have last night in soho which is the latest film from edgar wright i love edgar wright's kind of earlier work big fan of Shaun of the dead and hot fuzz fantastic films i did not like baby driver at all 
I do not like Last Night in Soho either. And I think this film is definitely receiving mixed reviews. You know, it's not receiving negative reviews, which it should do, but people like Edgar Wright because he makes sort of glossy, fast-paced entertainment movies. I just don't think he did a good job with this one. The concept is that the protagonist, who is played by Thomas and Mackenzie, is this very naive uh, young woman who's just starting fashion school in London. And she's from like a kind of more rural part of England. And she's completely obsessed with the 1960s. And she also has psychic powers and can like speak to ghosts and stuff. So when she arrives at fashion school, which incidentally, just the the way he depicts going to university in central London is like completely detached from reality. Like just, he went to an art school in like a small English town and clearly he's extrapolating from there in ways that don't resemble like life in London. I went to uni in London. That was obviously 10 years ago, but like, it's absurd. Um, But anyway, she's kind of this outcast and she becomes obsessed with these dreams she has where she's basically living out the life of this much more glamorous young woman in 1960s London, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who obviously like, you know, we all enjoy Anya Taylor-Joy. It's not a very interesting role for her in this. Basically her job is to be kind of glamorous and wear cool 1960s outfits and look really beautiful, which she does with a plume. But um, I can't really discuss spoilers for this. Like it it came with a huge spoiler warning where basically you're not meant to discuss the second half of the film. So um, I don't want to ruin that experience for anyone who wants to watch Last Night in Soho. But there's a lot of twists in the latter half. Matt Smith also plays this character who's kind of the boyfriend slash manager of Anya Taylor-Joy's character who's this like wannabe nightclub singer but clearly Edgar Wright is like trying to make this movie that's about like the falsity of nostalgia and it's also sort of a horror movie because there's these ghost elements and also it's about sort of sexual harassment because the protagonist is experiencing all these like creepy men for the first time when she moves to London but it's just all really stupid. I mean, I, I told Morgan the spoilers for this like after I watched the film and she was just like, I literally cannot believe how stupid that sounds. And it is very stupid. Yeah, I can't really talk about this in a sophisticated way. I did publish a review of it, but oh, would not recommend. It's just so shallow and poorly executed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously we won't spoil the movie and I haven't seen it, but you told me what happens and I was just like, I was laughing out loud. Like, I could not believe it. It sounded so appalling. So silly. And also, like, there's a role in this for Terrence Stamp, who's playing this kind of creepy old guy who is kind of stalking, perhaps, the protagonist in the present day. And, like, Terrence Stamp is uniquely placed to play a creepy old guy. And he's not creepy. And I'm like, what did you do? How do you direct Terrence Stamp to, like, not be a a compelling character? So, on the whole, it's a no from me. Yeah, I will not be seeing this film. You successfully... Just a, a persuaded lot of me not to. 1960s needle drops. Edgar Wright was like, God, I love 1960s fashion and, and music. And then like proceeds to not do anything with that in terms of commentary on the fact that all this nostalgia is like deeply absurd. He basically just never subverts that successfully. <laughs> Bad. Let's move on to talking about a much better film. Yeah. It's the Power of the Dog, directed by Jane Campion, of course. I think this is probably the best reviewed movie of the year certainly of the festival season based on what i'm reading everybody is like nuts for this film it's going to get nominated for a fuck ton of oscars and that makes me happy because jane campion as i said on our episode last week 
has not made a movie since Bright Star in 2009. And I remember hearing her talk about this and obviously read reviews when she was doing Top of the Lake. And she was basically just like, it is impossible to get a movie funded right now. Like, it just cannot be done. And she is one of our greatest living filmmakers. So just having a new Jane Campion movie is so gratifying to me. And I think this is an incredible film. So I was just like beside myself with joy watching this movie, which is a Western new territory for her. It's set in Montana. They shot it in New Zealand. It takes place in the 1920s. And the plot setup is that this woman who is played by Kirsten Dunst, she has a sort of late teenage son from her first marriage. And she winds up marrying this sort of like nice but hapless man played by Jesse Plemons, her real life husband, and moving into his house where unfortunately his he has lived for his whole life with his brother played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who is not a nice man. And um, <laughs> yeah, he's a straight up and down monster. <laughs> yep. And he really torments her. And then the the son who's played by Cody Smith McPhee, who's wonderful as everyone in this movie comes back from school over the summer. And then he and Benedict Cumberbatch sort of wind up having this sort of odd relationship, which is freaking his mom out because she's just like, stay away from him. I love this movie, as I've already said. When the casting news came out like years ago, I remember thinking like, Benedict Cumberbatch? Like, is that really who you're casting in this movie? Who I think is talented for sure, but like not good at American accents and just like his career has been very boring recently. Yeah, I mean, he he is a good character actor who almost always is playing just shit roles. He loves middle-of-the-road British historical dramas and rip-offs of Sherlock, and that has been almost all of the stuff he has done for the past decade. But this is a really great and out-of-character role for him. He is very scary, and it makes extremely good use of his face, which I think a lot of films don't, you know, because he's a very unusual-looking person. And one of the really fantastic things about Sherlock was, like, you know, Sherlock, he was at, like, peak beauty at that point. He's a very odd looking man. And that film, that show was just like, look at this strange angular Sherlock Holmes, which is what we want from Sherlock Holmes. And then a lot of other films, because he's just playing like historical figure number three, they just have to try and make him look normal. And in this, they're like, okay, yeah, this guy is like a reptile. You know, he's, (laughs) he kind of like looks at people with these cold, steely glare. And he's intent, like the character himself is intentionally making himself scary and it's often like quite funny as well. I'd actually quite like to rewatch this because I watched it with a couple of people who really hated it. And it made me like really uncertain about the fact that I liked it afterwards. So I was like, I thought that was pretty good. And they were both like absolutely dunking on it. And I was like, what's happening? <laughs> and it's like, when you get like, when you're faced with that, it's like, it just makes me a bit uncertain. And then I was like, no, but it is a good movie. And like, obviously all critics thought it was good. But <laughs> yeah, you texted after this and were like, my friends thought this was terrible. Like, I thought it was pretty good. And like, my head was like exploding. <laughs> I was just like, everyone agrees this movie is a masterpiece. Like, what the fuck? Of course it's good. I mean, it is, there have been scientific studies done, which I think is totally fascinating that if you go to a movie with someone, you are likely to come out of it with the same opinion oh, of it absolutely. that they have. Which I've totally experienced with like my friend Nicole and I go to the movies together all the time. And we don't always have the same opinion. But if we go to see something together, we pretty much always think 
the same thing. We've been going to movies together for 15 years, so our brains have gotten in sync. So I think you definitely should see it again. I mean, the film that I was thinking about the most when I was watching it, which I told you after, was There Will Be Blood, which is a comparison that I'm slightly hesitant to make, though I will qualify it here, because There Will Be Blood is... Long-time listeners will know is one of my, like, two favorite movies ever. It's and I incredible. Think it's, Fucking like, love that movie. <laughs> you know, absurd masterpiece. And I think this movie is fantastic. Like, five stars for me. I don't think it's as good as There Will Be Blood, which is, like, fine, because most films are not. Also, this is, like, a small-scale psychodrama. Yeah. And There Will Be Blood is way, just sort of, like, stranger and more ap- operatic than this movie. This movie is more interested in the conventions of the Western, which There Will Be Blood definitely isn't. But... I do think there are really interesting parallels. The way that the Cumberbatch character, whose name is Phil Burbank, behaves, especially in the first half of the movie, is very reminiscent of Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood in terms of just being this kind of menacing, but clearly very smart character in this sort of underdeveloped frontier town there's a scene in particular where he's in a restaurant and it's just like screaming at the other patrons that is almost exactly the same as a scene in there will be blood and the johnny greenwood score in this movie the first score he did that made him sort of a film composer was there will be blood and a lot of the music in this sounds totally different from that but there were occasional moments where i was like oh that sounds quite similar Similar to the There Will Be Blood score, which I was obviously thinking about going in. And I think that sense of just like menace and also this critique of masculinity in a way that I don't want to get into details. I think people should just experience the movie. There's a lot of fun masculinity in this. (laughs) Very, very similar to what's going on in There Will Be Blood. But what this movie does that's different, and I'm reading the novel now, um, it's based on a novel that was written in the 60s, I think, and is quite autobiographical. The author's mother married some guy and they like moved into the house. And I think there was a figure who was similar to this sort of scary man there. But I feel like in There Will Be Blood, like you do really have a sense of Daniel Plainview as a human by the end and it's his story is quite sad even though he's quite monstrous but what is really interesting about the power of the dog to me is that the first half of the movie this guy is totally just like terrifying in the book you're more in his head the whole time so he's a little bit more sympathetic throughout even if he's behaving badly but there's kind of a turn that happens halfway through the film where you begin to understand more what is actually driving this person. And by the end of the movie, it's not that she is like, actually, he's secretly nice because he definitely isn't. But he winds up being, to me, quite a sympathetic and tragic figure, which I definitely was not expecting to happen based on how the movie it's began. A, yeah, it's a really interestingly unpredictable narrative structure while also being full of really fun foreshadowing. (laughs) Yeah. And another thing that reminded, made me think of There Will Be Blood and of a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson movies, like I feel like those films, you almost always have to watch them twice to fully get what's going on. And I think that that's the case here too. And in terms of the Cumberbatch performance, again, like I think the whole cast is fantastic. Like this is, all of these actors obviously just like great. But I just thought he was incredible in this movie. And I was thinking about his career afterward because he has made just so many like awful biopics. And I kind of thought like maybe he just has bad taste, but 
in the interviews he's done about this movie, he was like, I was so desperate to do this film. I read the script and it was so amazing, which obviously it was. And I was like, Hollywood is such a disaster for like everybody right now, even straight white men. If you want to do dramas, like what is there that's not these terrible films, right? Like there's like one movie like this a year, basically. And he managed to get it this time. And he's incredible in it. And both at the scary stuff, but also the stuff later in the movie where he's a little bit more vulnerable and you feel for him more. Like, I just thought he was fantastic at all of it. And I was just thinking like, so he's capable of this. And a lot of that credit goes to Campion too. Like she's an incredible director and clearly identified something in him that was going to be able to give this performance and she drew it out of him. But like, Hollywood was like, no, we're just going to keep casting you as like Sherlock Light and everything. Doctor Strange. So depressing. <laughs> I have to say, a lot of his performance definitely um, is down to the trousers. The trousers are doing a lot of legwork, <laughs> if I may say. Um, he's wearing these Great like enormous, too. yeah, enormous riding trousers. And um, before we move on to the next film, Kirsten Dunst is also really good in this movie. Like she's playing this very nervous, vulnerable, middle-aged woman. And she's great because like you really sympathize with her, but it's like, you know, she's very fallible and, you know, not really standing up for herself, not really that bright or strategic and is like a really obvious target. Like it is this interesting setup of, you know, this really obvious bully character and these extremely obvious victims, you know, because her son is this very gawky, quite effeminate teenager who's just completely socially different from all of these rough and tough cowboy types. So yeah, it's it's an interesting selection of characters. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be on Netflix later in the year and it will also be in some theaters. But yeah, um, everyone can watch that on Netflix next month. Yeah, it's oh so great. The next film is something you have seen and I have not. And I am so excited to watch this movie. So <laughs> please give me your little capsule review. Yes, yeah, so this is Petite Maman, which is by Celine Sciamma, the director of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Icon and legend. Love her. This movie is like less than an hour and a half long. It's like 75 minutes or something. It's gorgeous. It's a really small, sweet, lovely, slightly mournful film about this little girl, like the protagonist is this eight-year-old and her grandmother's just died and she and her parents go to this, go to her grandmother's house to clear it out. And while they're staying there, she goes to play in the forest and basically meets like her mother's younger self as like also an eight-year-old girl. And it's just about like the friendship between these two girls. And it very much felt like an adaptation of one of those sort of classic children's novels where there's no need to like explain what's happening. And it's all kind of through the emotional mindset of a young child. And it's just like a lovely, charming, moving, funny, cute film. It's great. It's so good. I mean, obviously we love Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I love her other films too. I think I've seen all of them. So I'm very excited. Our next title is something I saw that Gav did not, which is the Norwegian film, The Worst Person in the World, which was one of the like really buzzy movies out of Cannes. It is directed by Joachim Trier, who also directed quite a while ago a film called Reprise and then Oslo, August 31st. And this is being described as like the third part of a, that, a trilogy, which is a very loose term. Like they're all set in Oslo and they're kind of about similar themes, but they're not, it's not, they're not actually like directly connected to each other. 
I really like both those two earlier movies. He's made a couple other things since as well. Yeah, I saw the one he did that was about like someone getting psychokinesis. So like, I've seen the one of his movies that's basically the X Men. <laughs> Different, yeah. Thelma, I think that one's called. Yeah, good movie. But all these three films star uh, Anders Danielson Lee, who is also in Bergman Island this year, which I haven't seen yet, but here is great. Who is an incredible actor, also a practicing doctor, which like, sure, no comment. How does that work? So he plays the boyfriend of the main character in this film, who's played by this actress I'd never heard of called Bernada Rensiv. They are both fantastic. This movie is set up in sort of like 12 chapters. So it's it's very literary. It's kind of like little short stories. And she's younger than he is and is kind of a mess. Like she doesn't quite know what she wants to do with her life. And he is a cartoonist who in his younger years basically did like really raunchy, like sexist, gross <laughs> graphic novels and cartoons. And then is at some point in the movie does like a more serious memoir. But basically the first half of this movie, I was completely entranced. I was just like, I fucking love this. Both the actors are fantastic. It's shot beautifully, very funny, very charming, kind of like rom-com vibes. And then the second half that sort of takes a turn and becomes more dramatic. And there's a twist with a plot element. I won't spoil, but it comes much more dramatic. And I felt kind of manipulative and sentimental in a way that I did not enjoy. The actors remain really good throughout. Daniel Sanderson Lee has a scene in particular at the end that is really dramatic and moving. And I was like, I don't like this, but you're very good. <laughs> so most people I know who saw this movie just like completely loved it. And it was getting just like raves across the board. So I feel like I'm kind of the odd person out of this because I liked but didn't love it. I think it's still worth seeing if you like indie films from other countries and want to watch like hot people making out of which there is a quite a bit in this film. But I definitely was kind of like, mm, it's frustrating, particularly when you see a movie that has so much that's great about it. And then something just like doesn't quite work. And you're like, if, if you could just rewrite the screenplay a little bit, <laughs> like this would have been so good. The next movie we're going to talk about, though, we definitely both do endorse 100%. I don't know how the fuck we're going to talk about this because <laughs> what to say without spoiling. Okay, so Titan is the new body horror film by Julia de Carnot, whose film Raw we reviewed a few weeks ago. It won the Palme d'Or, the Cannes Film Festival this year. And it's very extreme. It's kind of been marketed as like, look out, this movie's really extreme, which it is. It is shock value, but it's like shock value with substance and very well executed. However, if you don't like body horror or you have any particular triggers, Google the film. Like there, there's a lot of stuff in here where I would be like, holy shit, this is like, this is like some dangerous territory. When I was watching it, multiple people walked out within the first like 15 to 20 minutes. I understand why they walked out. The people who remained really enjoyed it. Like there was a lot of laughter. Literally people applauded at the end, which is not something that happens in British movie theatres. It's a lot. I cannot remember the last time I saw like a normal audience applaud a movie, but they applauded Titan. Yeah, it's fucking baller. I mean, the premise is about this young woman who is played by a first time actor who is like a photographer who the director found on Instagram, but she's playing this character who 
as a child is in a car crash and has to have a titanium plate installed in her head. And then as an adult, she's like very peculiar in terms of personality. And yeah, I don't want to explain anything else that happens in this movie. There's a lot of extreme violence. It's quite horny in many points in a very weird way. There's a lot of really bizarre and unusual stuff about gender and gender roles. Yeah, I mean, God, it's a lot. (laughs) Well, I will say in terms of the sort of extremity of the movie. So we did Raw a few weeks ago, as you said, and that was a movie that like I could appreciate certain like artistic elements of the film. And I was glad to have seen it and talked about it because this movie was coming out and was obviously going to be a big deal. But I did not particularly enjoy the experience of watching Raw and I had some qualms with it. Yeah, whereas this is like fun as hell and like great characters, incredibly weird, interesting, fun characters. And I found the violence in Raw way more unpleasant and difficult to watch. I think probably being in a theater helped with this one, right? Because like you can't pause, like you kind of just have to get through it. But I also think just like objectively, there is much less than in Raw because the whole premise of Raw, which is about cannibalism, is was like, there's going to be a ton of this throughout yeah. the whole movie. I mean, a lot of the strangeness in Titan is more to do with social awkwardness. Yes. And the violence is front loaded. Like most of it is in the first half an hour, I would say. And so there was definitely stuff where I was not looking at the screen. I fully had my eyes closed for significant chunks of that like early section. Yeah. But then once that's kind of over, it really sort of transforms into something else that is, as you say, way more about these like strange social situations and the gender stuff, which like we won't explain how that manifests, but it's really funny. And it was more like made me think more in a more interesting way than Raw, where I was kind of just like, okay, like I get that you're kind of doing a thing. And like, it was interesting, but I, it felt a little bit, showy to me whereas this felt like really i mean raw was quite obviously allegorical whereas this is like not allegorical (laughs) it's just it is not relatable yeah and i mean i think there is like you could definitely write an essay about kind of the thematic point she's making about like parenting which i think would probably be the like if you wanted to make an allegorical point but it's not as clear-cut a to b right whereas raw i think is and i was just really taken with it. The performances are great. Vincent Landon plays the sort of second lead and he is tremendous. <laughs> like, oh can, my oh. God. His Nominate role. that man for an Oscar. Truly. Mwah. I also, with this movie, like a friend of mine from college is working on the distribution release PR stuff in America. And we talked about it beforehand and she was like, I thought it was like, she obviously is really excited about the movie but she said like i think you might hate it and that's a great way to go into a film because i was like i didn't like raw very much and maybe i'll hate this and then i was like no this is great <laughs> you know so it was just a really fun experience they got a standing ovation at the public NIF screening that i went to which is also doesn't like it doesn't happen a ton and france picked it to be its candidate for the international film oscar which would definitely never have happened if it hadn't won the palm and truly the idea of this is crazy part of the oscar cycle i mean part of me is like that's gonna be so fun other parts of me are like i don't know if this is something which i want to see discussed in like mainstream clueless like pop culture coverage who knows 
and also I mean, most people are going to fight it too extreme. No. <laughs> so, yeah. I, somehow I feel that the, you know, 9,000 people or whatever in the Academy are just going to be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> but I love that it's in the conversation, <laughs> is my feeling. That's out in America right now. It's hasn't really made any money, so I don't know how much longer it will be in theaters. But if you can see it in a theater, I definitely recommend doing so if you can stomach it. And then it'll be on, you know, streaming platforms soon. And out in the UK someday. <laughs> so, you know. Tell me about Memoria, another Tilda Swinton vehicle. Okay, so this is the latest film by the Thai filmmaker Apichat Pong Wirasathakul, who is a hugely acclaimed director. Indie film people fucking love him. I've seen one of his movies before, which is Uncle Boon Me, Who Can Recall His Past Lives, which is a very critically acclaimed film that came out 10 years ago. Probably didn't like fully appreciate it. And my key memory of that is that it's the only movie I've ever fallen asleep during. <laughs> I was like fucking conked out. And that is kind of a Peter Pong's brand. He has in fact done like a sort of traveling art installation where people could sleep over in the middle of one of his films. It would like start at 10 p.m. and there'd be like a long film sequence where you just lie down in a bed and fall unconscious. His films are like in some ways extraordinarily boring. That is the vibe. Or as other people might describe it, meditative. This is like a good movie, but I had like a coffee and I was sitting there like strategically drinking this coffee to make sure I stayed awake. That all sounds like I'm dunking on this movie. It is actually really good, but it's a very specific style of filmmaking, which is by no means accessible. And the concept of this film is that Tilda Swinton plays this character who doesn't really have sort of um, a personality or backstory. Morgan was saying earlier that a lot of her recent roles are quite big. This is like the opposite of that. She is playing, you know, a character who, as Tilda Swinton described it, she has Tilda Swinton's accent and appearance. (laughs) (laughs) and is just wearing normal clothes. Um, Her name is Jessica and she is staying in Colombia and she's visiting her sister who has some kind of ailment. And the story begins with Tilda hearing a weird loud noise and she becomes obsessed with the source of this noise, which is just like thunk. And it's inspired by the director's real life experience with this thing called exploding head syndrome, where you just hear like a weird loud noise and it's kind of like an auditory hallucination sort of thing. And the rest of the film is Tilda like investigating what's going on here, which makes it sound more narratively conventional than it is. It is a magic realist film. And, you know, part of this director's specialty is he will do a lot of extraordinarily long shots where nothing is happening. So there'll just be like five minutes of just like rain or someone sitting and not doing anything. They're very kind of alienating films because he doesn't like to do close-ups. So you basically don't see Tilda Swinton's face properly until like the last 15 minutes of the movie. A lot of it is sort of conversations with her and other people where it's like really from a distance. And the soundscapes are absolutely incredible. The way he sort of records sound, I don't know the technicalities, but like you really feel like you're immersed in the environment and the environments he chooses are extremely soporific. So it's just like you can hear like an air conditioner hum or something. Um, So it's an amazing piece of art that may render you unconscious. (laughs) And it's it's also like quite funny. Like it's a funny film. It's very kind of observant and interesting and weird and quirky and fantastical. Yeah, I mean, he's done a great job at creating this very specific niche of cinema, which is highly appreciated by many. Uh, Well, I look forward to seeing that someday when it returns to New York. Yeah, this film's gimmick is it's never going to be released at home. It's just like going to be screening in cinemas forever just circling the world doing one week at a time at random cinemas (laughs) 
I mean, I think it's kind of absurd they're not releasing it on DVD, and I kind of suspect that that will happen at some point. But on the other hand, movies are having such a hard time right now that I kind of feel like, you know what? Just do a weird gambit. Like, I mean, why not? Uh, it's sure. never going to be Star Wars. It's a movie where Tilda Swinton looks for a weird noise. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know? <laughs> so the last film that we both saw is the new Joel Cohen Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, among others. This is the first movie that Joel Cohen has directed as not a member of the Cohen brothers in decades. And uh, it's very good. Shocking news that, <laughs> that a film with that pedigree is very good. It is shot in Academy ratio. So it's kind of like a square in black and white and the sets are all kind of deliberately stagey and minimalist and definitely taking a lot of inspiration from sort of 1920s German expressionist like early yes. early cinema the film looks great like I really love that aesthetic it really sort of judges up what is going to be a very familiar text there was a Michael Fassbender Macbeth just a few years ago which we both enjoyed and this movie is like having a bit more fun with it you know it's very clearly sort of like abstract even though I've seen Macbeth like probably like 10 times or something at this point, I always just forget what happens each time. So I didn't really notice the changes that he'd made to the text, but I went with a friend who is very like, you know, much more of a Shakespeare expert than I. And she kind of pointed out that one of the main characters, obviously for film adaptations of Shakespeare, there's often like a couple of characters that are amalgams because like you don't need to have all of those sort of random pages that come on and give some exposition. But like one of the main characters in this film is an amalgam of like loads of characters who isn't really in like the the usual Macbeth. He's played by this actor named Alex Hassel, who's like an optically well-known British character actor, but like that's like a really interesting touch, which I'm sure Shakespeare people will notice more than I did. But um, you know, there's lots of fun other character actors in this, like Bertie Carvel, who I especially liked as Banquo. Yeah, apparently so that sort of like additional character is called Ross, mm. which is the name of one of the small characters Macbeth and someone asked about that at the press conference in New York and apparently that is just like a thing that gets done in production sometimes that they So maybe I've seen many a production that has like Ross. <laughs> I mean, I have seen many Macbeths and I've never seen that. So I, it's not like de rigueur, but I think yeah. it wasn't like Joel Cohen invented that himself, but it stuck out a lot to me too because I know Macbeth extremely well. And was kind of like, have I forgotten this character? <laughs> this guy like, what is like, going almost on? got this sort of like omniscient role. Like he's kind of in places where he shouldn't be. And yeah. I found it really interesting. It's the most kind of recognizably Coen-Zy thing about the movie. There's just something slightly off about him in an interesting way. I often feel with Shakespeare adaptations, I really like them in general. I always feel like, why not just do a Shakespeare adaptation? Like, an endlessly renewable resource, right? But I feel like most films that adapt Shakespeare or attempt to adapt Shakespeare don't do a very good job, or at least not a successful job, because they're fundamentally not designed to be on film, right? And the Fastbender Macbeth is a good example of that. I enjoyed that movie, and I think it's worth seeing, but it is very awkward in certain ways and it's like interesting as an experiment to someone who knows and likes the play but I don't think it totally works as a movie whereas what I liked about this film I thought it was a really good adaptation of the play they cut a fair amount of stuff yeah this movie is like a nice palatable length yeah I mean it's the shortest Shakespeare play so it gets adapted 
pretty often and put on a lot because it's manageable. Like it's, or it's a short tragedy, I should say. But it also feels like very intentionally like a movie, even though it the sets are really stagey, which I appreciated. Like it feels like they're thinking a lot, like everyone involved in making it about making it a film as opposed to like Shakespeare yeah. on your screen, right? And they're having fun with like the experience as a whole. I don't mean this in a sort of negative way towards this interpretation, but like it's not the sort of Shakespeare play that's like, oh, we're really going to like dig deep into what the character of Macbeth is and think of a really new interpretation of that character. It's like obviously Denzel Washington, A, tremendous performance, and like B, really interesting character, like very well-drawn relationship between him and Lady Macbeth, Francis McDormand, obviously also tremendous, but like they're not kind of experimenting with deep like psychological, we're delving into new territory here. It's more like the whole production, particularly the aesthetic, is just like this really entertaining kind of compelling thing that's just like an original thing of itself well and i think that production design is doing a lot of work interpreting the play yeah for sure it's just not like the bosler and romeo and juliet which i think is probably the best shakespeare adaptation so i'm not criticizing that at all yeah. but it's very flashy and it's very much like this is new right <laughs> and this movie is not doing that. I thought Francis McDormand, whom I love, was like fine but not great. Denzel was better. And I Denzel loved is in the witch. I loved the witch. Catherine Hunter <laughs> plays the witches, but it's just one of her and they do a lot of interesting stuff with sort of shooting her and tripling her at various points. She is astounding. She is a British stage actor and contortionist in her 60s. And I was just like, God, I love a crone. A weird crone is truly a breath of fresh air in this day and age where Corella Deville is a fucking 30-year-old, like, babe. No, we want crones, damn it. (laughs) Love this crone. (laughs) Yeah, they're campaigning Frances McDormand for supporting actress, which means Catherine Hunter is screwed and I was just like I fucking hate this like Francis doesn't need another Oscar nomination come on I know please she's probably the highlight of the film along with Denzel Washington who I realize it's not like a novelty to be like Denzel Washington very good at acting but um he's just incredible he's also a really good king like some people are great at playing like a powerful bad and it's like yeah he's good while also obviously being Macbeth because he's like a fucked up nervous wreck (laughs) well and I feel like a lot of the really famous Denzel performances, you do get this sense of like power and like incredible charisma, which he of course has. But the first half of Macbeth, it's all about Macbeth being like, I don't really know. Like I'm not really (laughs) into this. (laughs) And he was really good at kind of like, it's pretty, a pretty quiet performance in the first half in a way that, I mean, of course, he's done such a huge range of things, but it's not just not the first thing you think of necessarily when you think of Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. It was just really good. And some actors can just speak Shakespeare dialogue and it just completely sounds I was like thinking that. I was like, how English. many plays has this man done? Like, I was, I was just like, you could just like, is he so kind of practiced? And I was just like, occasionally yeah. I would kind of come out of the film, like, you know, because I was, you know, obviously pretty into it for the whole movie, but I was like, I would just be thinking... Denzel's certainly an expert. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. It was funny. The one thing I will say about the press conference is, because they were all there, is like he and Francis McDormand are just like true weirdos, which totally makes sense because they are too famous. And 
<laughs> Neither of them said anything objectionable at all. It was just like, they're both just very strange. And like quite serious, you know? <laughs> oh, Frances McDormand is a kook. She's just a funny, odd lady. And he was clearly not paying attention, which like, why would you? Like, <laughs> you know, but... Then, like, Bernie Carvel would occasionally say something, and it would be, like, really eloquent and thoughtful, and I was like, right, because you're not actually famous. You're just, like, a normal man who happens to do this job. So he's, like, giving the journalists their actual quotes, and meanwhile, the Oscar winners are like, I guess we're here, because we have to be. Like, it was just a very funny... I really like Bertie Carvel. There was lots of really great um voices in this. Like, I don't know how they were recording the voices, like, maybe it's just because, like, you know, they're all Shakespearean actors, so they're, like, declaiming very well. But there was a lot of great vocal textures, and Bertie Carvel has an especially good one. <laughs> yes, and they all just speak in their normal accents. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. They're just, you know, thank God. Very refreshing. So the last movie we have to talk about is one that I saw that was made available digitally. Very refreshing. Thank you to Sony Pictures Classics, which is the new Almodovar movie, uh, Parallel Mothers, stars Penelope Cruz. I do not know Elmodovar's films very well at all. This is only the third one I've seen. And I saw Volver when I was like 17. So I do not remember it well at all. And I was one of the few people who did not like Pain and Glory very much a couple years ago. I mean, I thought it was fine, but I was not as enamored with it as many people were. So I kind of didn't have a ton of expectations for this movie one way or the other. And I really, really loved it. Penelope Cruz stars as this woman who is a very successful photographer and she winds up having this brief relationship with this man whose job it is he's like a archaeologist of some kind he excavates like mass graves from the spanish civil war basically and there's one such grave in her hometown where i think her grandfather has been buried and that's kind of how the movie starts and then that doesn't come up again until the end of the film but she gets pregnant as a result of this relationship and decides to have the baby. And there's another woman in the hospital room with her when she's having this baby who is a teenage mother who's also going to be a single mom. And they wind up kind of running into each other again afterward and having this relationship. And I don't want to spoil what happens, but the film is this really great combination of what Almodovar is so good at doing, which is these sort of like melodrama plot lines that feel kind of like they're out of the 40s or 50s but then it also has this political component and the whole thing is kind of an allegory for Spain's lack of interest in dealing with the Spanish Civil War sort of a few generations on and I was particularly fascinated with this because we went to Madrid a few years ago and were both interested in that component of the country's history and we went to many museums and it was like this event had never happened it was very weird situation i was like what (laughs) and especially as an american if you are sort of leftist person the abraham lincoln brigades which was the american civilians who went and fought on the side of the communists in the spanish civil war is this kind of like 
romanticized thing that you wind up reading about pretty often. And obviously not just Americans did that, but that was a lot of like my context for knowing about Spanish history. And I read a book about it before we went and I was like, literally, there is no mention. Yeah. Like at one point we went to this like giant, like multi-story military museum because we're both like, we love military history. And they had like, (laughs) there was like a cupboard that was the Civil War. (laughs) It was totally surreal. So the film does give you some context for this, but I feel like people who don't know about that, and I certainly am not counting myself an expert, but like I have enough context that I definitely felt like I got what was going on. But like, I feel like Spanish viewers are going to have a way more sophisticated response to this movie than like the average American or other, you know, nationality viewer. Like it just felt so interesting and smart to me what was going on with this movie. And he doesn't get into the details about, like the war or the conflict. And I don't think anyone even mentions like the name of a sort of partisan group until the end of the movie, but it's all sort of like beneath the surface in terms of like just denial, not wanting to deal with stuff. And that plays out through this melodrama plot with these two mothers in a way that I thought was totally fascinating. And it's just entertaining on the level of like the stuff going on with them is engaging regardless, but it also has this other component. Penelope Cruz is always great, but I think she is incredible in this movie. Like, so fantastic. So this was a real, like, pleasant surprise to me. That I, Not that I was expecting it to be bad at all, but I just wasn't... I was just kind of like, oh, I guess I'll watch this movie. And then I wound up totally loving it. So... I don't know when this is coming out, but I imagine it will be in the next couple of months. And I definitely recommend that people see it because I thought it was just fantastic. And if it encourages people to read more about, you know, history, then that's also a plus. So yeah, really great movie. I'm excited for you to watch it so that we can talk about it because it was it was really, really good. On the whole, a very successful festival experience for us yeah, this year, even usually, though I didn't get to like, see very Usually much. we're watching like three movies a day for a week and a half. So you get a lot more random, bad and, yeah. you know, mediocre films. Whereas this time, you know, we were paying for our tickets. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed this and have some recommendations to yeah. watch Please out for. Please tweet us with your thoughts if you have any questions or have recently enjoyed these films, etc. And join us next week for an episode on Dune. The new Dune. We have already recorded an episode about the old Dune, which you can listen to. In the end, we decided just not to read the book. But um, <laughs> I liked the new Dune. Obviously, it's racially insensitive, which is pretty predictable, considering the context and the source material. But, you know, Morgan will see it soon. We can discuss it. Lots of fun stars in this. Oscar Isaac is so beautiful. <laughs> I just saw him... I just saw him in the card counter finally, and I was just like, this is the most talented and beautiful man, like, alive, possibly. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, And then we will finally be doing the North Water, which we had planned to do last week after that. So you have extra time to catch up with all of the, you know, murderous Arctic whalers. (laughs) But we'll do it dune first so yeah thank you as always for listening um if you would like to support us on patreon you can do so at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast gabia where can our listeners find you and your work online you can find me on youtube at behind the scenes and you can find me on twitter at hello underscore taylor and you can find me on twitter and letterboxd at ml davies 
The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.